Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. According to U.S. News & World Report, Ukraine faces budget cuts without $5 billion in monthly external aid. Ukraine's budget revenues cover less than half of expenditures following Russia's invasion, and Kiev will have to cut budget spending sharply if more external financial assistance does not arrive, the head of Parliament's Financial Committee said. This, while as of March, a total of 33,333 U.S. properties are showing foreclosure filings in as of March 2022, up 29% from the previous month and up 181% from a year ago. The national average price of gasoline on Saturday was $5 per gallon, up 60 cents from a month ago. America's soaring inflation is inflicting pain on household budgets across the United States. What are we to make of this? For insight, we turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Sloboda. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Well, it sounds like we have adopted a child. $5 billion for a paltry $5 billion a month. We've got a little Nazi stepchild on the border of Russia that the United States is now uh, supporting. Mark Sloboda. Oh, actually, that's just financial aid you're talking about that. You got to add another billion or so in military aid. Oh, yeah, so that's right. You're, you're, you're look, and that's just from the U.S., and you have to spread out a little bit more among other NATO countries. It's an expensive, ugly stepchild <laughs> you're, you're, you're raising there. And uh, the total cost to Western taxpayers is probably around $10 billion a month. And, you know, and w what are they, you know, getting it for? A, a, a regime that literally has state armed and funded neo-Nazi death squads, Azov, Right Sector, Carpathia Siege, C-14, uh, etc., that Western security agencies like the FBI are warning that their own far right have come over to train with them after they trained with the U.S. and the British and Canadian military and and bringing their knowledge and ideology back to the U.S., re-importing uh, uh, their their uh, far right uh, doctrine and um, uh, militant uh, experience and tactics. Way to go. That's that's a bargain for the American taxpayer, if I have ever heard of one. At the same time, uh, you know, and you have to remember that Joe Biden signed away $40 billion, right, uh, in total for the conflict and various measures with a, a big chunk of that going to the Kiev regime in Ukraine just a month ago. Um, at the same time, Joe Biden is t trying to tell the American taxpayer that he's not recklessly spending. <laughs> no. I mean, not at all. I mean, you know, um, he, you've just adopted an entire country uh, and are now the American taxpayers are now paying for it as well. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're fine with that. I'm 
I think. Well, I've talked about this before. I think I see three major phases of the conflict. Of course, you could, should, or could also break it down in a number of ways. One of them being the kinetic war, which uh, if it's a, supposedly it's a U.S. proxy war, they're losing. The next is the diplomatic war. And what we keep hearing with diplomacy is they've got to send more weapons and things like that to get um, uh, uh, to, so that now that we're getting closer to the inevitable diplomacy, that that this will give Ukraine a stronger seat at the, uh, you know, a stronger position at the at the uh, diplomatic table, which I argue the only thing that would do that was if they were winning. If you're losing, you're never going to have a stronger hand. I don't care how you play it. If you're losing a war, you don't have a strong hand at the diplomatic table. But I think we're talking about here is the other, and that is the financial. And it seems in all phases of this financial war of attrition, uh, the Biden people are losing. They're gathering wood and various things in the forest to survive now in parts of the of the um, in parts of the uh, uh, of Europe. The um, it seems to me that the Russians are making more money than they've ever made selling energy and commodities because they've driven the price of the energy and commodities up. The things that the, wor- the Russians are worried about now is that the ruble is too strong, and while there is. Uh, economic pain at home, this thing is just getting more and more uh, uh, expensive. And would I be wrong, Mark, in suspecting that a goodly part of this money that's going to Ukraine will somehow find its way into Cyprus and the Isle of Man and other places where money is hidden by oligarchs? Mark. Yeah, I mean, not only the financial aid, but the weapons that the U.S. is providing as well. I mean, that has been widely publicized. Uh, you can easily lock onto the dark net and buy some of those very same uh, javelins uh, and um, stingers that, that the U.S. taxpayer has provided to Ukraine. Uh, because uh, a considerable number of them were just told and sold right around, and uh, uh, jihadists in Syria and elsewhere, Al Qaeda, are buying them. So, so good job there. So, um, what exactly are we getting for this? You know, upwards of six billion dollars a month. Uh, you're you're getting you're losing the military war. The Guardian tells us we're losing the economic war too. Um, the uh, a diplomatic war. Well, I mean, the U.S. keeps insisting about the unity of the world and everything. They can't even guarantee the unity of the EU with Hungary and Greece and and uh, um, uh, Slovakia, Czech, other company, uh, countries in the EU bucking against sanctions and saying this is stupid and it's destroying our economy and it's not even working. And the rest of the world is like – yeah, you go ahead and do that. We're going to go do some business with Russia, whether we're talking Africa or South America or Southeast Asia or China, uh, India. You know, the majority of, of the world uh, wants no part of the Western economic war on Russia. And even the information war is starting to turn with The Guardian trumpeting that Russia's winning the economic war. The New York Times saying that Biden should should make Ukraine face reality and accept some terms. Um, and the, the, the papers suddenly actually reporting what has been true since the beginning and that the Kiev regime is losing the war badly. Bloomberg says corporate self-sanctioning of Russia has U.S. fearing economic blowback. Gee, I wonder if we'll, if we'll have some economic blowback. We better keep our eyes out. It could happen. Officials seek to clarify garden, uh, guidance so there aren't 
unintended impacts on inflation and supply chains. Well, that would only lead me to believe that the things that have happened so far must have been intended if they're looking to see if there's no unintended ones, Mark. Yeah, um, this one really has me flummoxed. <laughs> um, flummoxed. I'm, I'm, yeah, flummo- I'm, 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 I'm flummoxed by the way they're reporting this. They seem to think that the uh, Russian people are suffering because they can't buy McDonald's or I – mean, well, and actually McDonald's just sold off their property. It was bought up by, by locals who are just redoing the exact same thing with different branding in all of McDonald's locations and they just opened. So, I mean, I, we're missing the Ronald McDonald clown, I guess, yeah. and and the, the Mickey D logo. But other than that, I mean, they're actually still getting their same McDonald's hamburger. They, uh, Russian uh, domestic producers are jumping into these spots and making money like crazy, which is only stimulating the Russian economy further. Um, th- this article talks at the end about the psychological damage uh, the departure of high-profile U.S. firms does some psychological harm to Russia, psychological injury. But at the end of the day, the U.S. is losing soft power because ro- local Russians and uh, some you know, uh, foreign uh, firms that aren't averse to doing business in Russia, like China and India and everyone else, are just sweeping up, snapping up assets and grabbing up market share. This is the only thing this is hurting is American companies who are losing their market share. Uh, it, they shot themselves in the sh- in the foot going out of their way to please the U.S. government and the fear that they could be subject to sanctions or some type of public driven hysteria boycott or or whatever. This is really doing very – this part of the economic war is doing – as far as I can see, negligible damage to Russia, unless you count that psychological imagery <laughs> from from not being able to see the Ronald McDonald clown. And 97 percent of this is due to their own decisions, yes. their own hubris, their own arrogance and their inability because they have now forced a number of other countries in the world to seek different solutions to their problems, and those so now that they are finding those solutions, they're never coming back. Yeah, at, at the same time, you've got the U.S. government quietly going back and walking back their own sanctions with reports that the U.S. government is quietly encouraging agricultural and shimp- shipping companies to buy and carry more Russian fertilizer, which the world desperately needs and the U.S. tried to inhibit with its um, – not, not directly but through its um, restrictions, you know, trying to prevent Russia from making any fight financial transactions in the world um, and uh, being unable to insure its ships and dock and ports. Now they're saying – uh, go buy some more of that Russian fertilizer and ship it around without us removing the sanctions, and we're just going to look over here. It's really laughable. It's absurd. It shows the hubris. I mean, the uh, Janet Yellen said she was wrong. She was <laughs> she was wrong that the inflation in the U.S. Uh, you know wouldn't. She she imagined it would just kind of peter itself out. Meanwhile, it's continuing to skyrocket. 
while, you know, I hate to tell you guys this, but right now for two weeks, the inflation in Russia has been slashed to zero. Yeah. How you guys how are you guys enjoying that? Oh, it's just wonderful. And now I understand that um, the regime change that, that was being pushed for in Europe is actually starting, that Latvia's government, I believe, has fallen. Bulgaria's is in a world of, of trouble. And the, the, the domino of regime change has started in, uh, in, in, in Europe. What know you about that, uh, Mark? We got three minutes. Yeah, I, I think one of the big effects that we're going to be talking about this in in about 10 years, we're going to be looking back at the latest and say that this is the moment that the EU started to splinter, that rather than some type of great Western, you know, unity uh, and cohesiveness, we're starting to see the divides uh, within the EU tell and the economic damage they are doing to themselves that is not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to compound. The Dutch prime minister said, we have to accept that we're going to all be a little poorer in the EU uh, in, you know, to, to finance their economic war on Russia, which is not really having much of an effect on Russia. I don't know if the EU people are happy about that, but I think their politicians are going to pay at the polls. I think you're going to see Euroskeptic uh, uh, sentiment rising as there is a throw out the center right and center left bums in many European countries that are responsible for the huge drop in living standards rising in food and energy costs, which are hurtling the way of the average EU taxpayer. And so where do they go? <laughs> you th so you, you throw out the center right, you throw out the center left, where do you go? In France is a perfect example. There are far right and far left candidates, whether you're quote far right, far left. They're not really either. That's the way they're labeled. Mm -hmm. Whether you're uh, Marine Le Pen or Melenchon, they are both people who want nothing to do with the policies of, of this uh, uh, proxy war and this sanctions war on Russia. And they need to go outside the center right and center left to a real alternatives that will find itself reaching around. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Libertarian Institute writes, uh, U.S. and Chinese officials warn of looming conflict over Taiwan. Tensions between China and the U.S. continue to escalate as Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin warned of a Ukraine-like crisis in Taiwan, accusing Beijing of pursuing, quote, aggressive, end quote, foreign policies after trading threats over the disputed island with his Chinese counterpart. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a historian who currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair 
of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book that has just been released is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So in a speech in Singapore on Sunday, Austin claimed that Washington had witnessed a steady increase in provocative and destabilizing military activity near Taiwan. The PRC's moves threatened to undermine security, stability, and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. That's crucial for this region, and it's crucial for the wider world. He went on to claim that China had disregarded the rules-based international order, and China is following a more coercive and aggressive approach to its territorial claims and claiming this could spark a Ukraine-like conflict over Taiwan. Dr. Horn, as soon as a U.S. official interjects, disregarded the rules-based international order, I had a problem with that analysis and following a more coercive and aggressive approach, I have to ask Secretary Austin if he knows the difference between offense and defense. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, certainly the rules-based international order, so-called, is very problematic. Uh, That is to say that it's a concept that is embraced fundamentally in Washington, perhaps in the capitals of its North Atlantic allies, but it does not hold the same heft and weight as international law, which flows from the United Nations Security Council. In other words, RUBIO, the rules-based international order, is an attempt to do an in run around the United Nations Security Council, where Washington obviously does not always get its way. But it's important for your audience to recognize that the United States is in quite a quandary today. The front pages of our newspapers today are replete with headlines about the point that the Biden administration is on the verge of rolling back the tariffs against Chinese imports imports uh, from China to the United States uh, or exports from China to the United States market, which Mr. Trump had sought to impose and did impose during the midst of the so-called trade war. And so here you have this anomaly of Washington uh, talking about confronting China, but not able to move away from the Chinese products that help to depress inflation. In other words, Washington, U.S. imperialism, has constructed this dysfunctional relationship where it's heavily dependent upon the country that it wishes to confront, speaking of the People's Republic of China. That is an unsustainable proposition, which has given rise to the informed speculation that planet Earth may be on the verge of a monumental transition, a transition away from the hegemony and domination of the North Atlantic countries with the baton passed post-1945 from London to Washington, but now with the baton passing across the Pacific to the People's Republic of China, which will have enormous consequences, not only for capitalism, not only for anti-communism, the secular religion of the United States, but of course, enormous consequences for capitalism itself. 
And what's even more striking is that you have the so-called allies of the United States who seem quite prepared to go down with the ship. I'm speaking of these confrontations in Chinese waters or just on the other side of Chinese waters between Chinese forces and jets from Canada and Australia. Now, Canada has a population that's not larger than the black population of the United States of America. Australia's population is smaller than that. And yet they have the gumption to try to confront the People's Republic of China, which then, of course, brings us to Mr. Biden, uh, who was confronted with the spectacle of a joint Russian-Chinese military exercise as Mr. Biden was beating the war drums in Northeast Asia just a few weeks ago. And this military exercise supposedly was coincidental, but obviously uh, was a direct signal to U.S. imperialism. And Mr. Biden, if he can remember this, because without sounding ages, he does seem to have a problem with his memory, he should be reminded that repeatedly with these tabletop exercises where there is a confrontation between U.S. forces and Chinese forces, there have been 19 of these tabletop exercises. The United States has come out of the short end of the stick. You guessed it, 19 times. <laughs> so Washington better really uh, slow down, slow its roll, uh, because it's bruising, it's cruising for a bruising, and it won't be pretty, uh, least of all to those of us who are stuck on this ship of fools. And I think I should add one more point before I pass the microphone, which is that your listeners should realize that the way the United States got into this dilemma in 2022 has historical echoes. What I mean is that 2022 is driven by the point that Washington, as you know, is confronting Russia and Ukraine, and that's stage one of a confrontation with the People's Republic of China. What happened 50 years ago was that Nixon went to China, President, U.S. President Richard M. Nixon, in order to effectuate an anti-Soviet entente, anti-Moscow entente with China, the United States was on the back foot then during uh, all manner of revolutions or impending revolutions across the globe, including Nicaragua, Iran, Grenada, uh, even Afghanistan, believe it or not. And this was a kind of Hail Mary pass, to use the U.S. football jargon, that in a sense worked although it only worked for a brief period of time because China received in return massive foreign direct investment, which has created this juggernaut. The United States now is trying to unscramble the egg, is willing to destroy planet Earth in order to do so unless we are able to grab the wheel of the ship of state and steer the ship of state to calmer water. So let me ask you about uh, something you said you had mentioned, because the U.S. obviously had, albeit a uh, bad plan, they had a plan. And the plan was they're going to confront Russia, which is um, China's junior ally, as they saw it. They were going to weaken Russia. They were going to build a coalition of, str you know, NATO would now get stronger. 
They would then also at the same time build this Asian coalition. Then they're all ready to confront China. NATO's stronger. Russia's weaker. The coalition in, in Asia is strong. And now they're ready to confront China. None of those things worked. Russia's making more money than ever. Russia's making so much money they're having trouble to figure out how to spend it. NATO literally... We've got people in NATO now who are gathering firewood. They have returned to the time of hunter-gatherers because they don't have the proper energy and country after country is falling. And the NATO, the Asian coalition is all leaning towards China. None of their plan has worked, but yet they're acting as though the, it, it is it is it is worked flawlessly. Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all of that? Well, actually, the grim scenario you have sketched may be a bit too favorable, believe it or not, to U.S. imperialism. What I mean is, if you begin to look at this so-called anti-China alliance, speaking of the Quad, United States, Japan, Australia, India, uh, India is becoming uh, quite wobbly with regard to this Quad. As you know, it's under enormous pressure because it refuses to break relations with Russia, which is allied in turn with China. And there are those in Washington who are wondering, how can India be a credible member of the anti-China coalition when India in turn is yoked to Russia, not only in the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, but also through uh, other means as well. And then, just like the plan to enlist China against Russia, against Moscow, backfired over recent decades, you see something similar happening with regard to Japan. I think that Washington will live to rule the day that it encouraged increased military spending in Japan. Obviously, they have short memories. Obviously, there is little memory of World War II. And the fact that Washington thought that the only way it could defeat Japan during World War II was to engage in nuclear annihilation in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And it seems that Washington would like to replay that ghastly history by playing with fire, encouraging Japanese militarism, hoping that it can be turned against China and not turned across the Pacific to the United States of America. That is a bet that I would not want to make if I were in Washington. Joe Biden talks about we have to ensure diplomacy and foreign assistance are working to promote the rights of individuals. But at every turn, it is militarism and economic militarism that seem to be the first two plays in the Biden playbook. So on the one hand, now Joe Biden is talking about sanctions and, 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 and tariffs, uh, removing them against China. While Lloyd Austin is talking about invading China, invading Taiwan, pr provoking China, uh, we see this same. We we we've got the same situation in Venezuela, where they're going hat in hand, begging Maduro for oil, but still telling Wang Guaido, "You're our guy." He's on his way now to Saudi Arabia. First visit is to Israel, and then going to the West Bank. He should go to the West Bank first. They keep making the same wrong moves. Every single play is the wrong play. Well, the problem for Mr. Biden and the class that he represents, with all due respect, 
they don't have many options. Uh, U.S. imperialism is basically a one-trick pony. It invests heavily in the military and doesn't invest heavily necessarily in K-12 through education except to heart and school doors so that uh, 18-year-olds cannot invade with their assault rifles and kill 10-year-olds. And then if you look at the so-called Indo-Pacific economic framework, it's basically an insult to those Asian nations uh, who are being enticed because they can turn instead to China and the One Belt, One Road initiative and the regional comprehensive uh, economic partnership, which basically exponentially surpasses the Indo-Pacific economic framework of Washington, uh, which is tossing peanuts and insults to nations like Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, etc. So perhaps, Wilmer, you need to be a bit more charitable towards uh, Mr. Biden. Uh, He doesn't have that many options. Uh, He has a playbook that does not have that many plays, and that's one of the reasons why he's limping so badly. Well, obviously, I need to enroll in the Professor Gerald Horn School of uh, <laughs> of Generosity because uh, I I got I, I got I got to sit at the knee, <laughs> Doctor Gerald Horn. As always, sir, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis and your charity, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my most charitable co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. inflation resumes rapid rise by accelerating in May. Consumer prices rose 1% during the month and 86 from a year ago, adding more pressure on the Fed to cool the economy. And what is the Fed's response? Well, they deliver the biggest interest rate hike in decades to combat the surging inflation. The Federal Reserve today escalated its battle, announcing the largest interest rate hike in 28 years as the central bank struggles to regain control over soaring consumer prices. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy. He's a professor in the economics and politics department at St. Mary's College. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy, From Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. So the increase in inflation as well as the Fed's response are of real concern to you. Why is that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, what we've got is a very uh, chronic, consistent rise in prices. Uh, We've seen three months now over 8% uh, official CPI increases. It's not slowing down. And what we see coming behind it is the producer prices, in other words, that uh, flow into uh, eventually into consumer prices rising even faster 
chronically and consistently as well. Producer price index is uh, well over 10% <clears throat> three months in a row. Uh, we see global forces uh, that uh, are not going to abate and look like they're going to continue, specifically commodity price increases, energy and agriculture, industrial metals, and so forth because of uh, global sanctions and war. Uh, we see um, probably more pressure on global supply chains with uh, the shutdowns in, in China and now rising demand as it uh, uh, opens up and other supply chain issues. In other words, the supply side problems are not going away and intensifying, especially energy. Uh, and, uh, of course, that drives what's called headline inflation energy and food prices. A lot of food prices driven by energy as well. Uh, so it's not abating. It's uh, probably, I predict, uh, going to continue at the rates or even intensify the next several months. So the Fed uh, has uh, raised interest rates faster than it had previously indicated it, it might. That's the three quarters of 1%, 75 basis points. But what I find interesting in listening to Fred, uh, uh, you know, Powell, Jerome Powell, of the Fed this morning um, uh, in his press conference after raising the rates is that he keeps saying, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're targeting demand. In other words, we're targeting uh, consumer spending. And then in the same breath, he says, we can't do anything about these, these global forces, you know, China and the war and commodity prices and so on and so forth, you know. And then to top it off, he says, we're going to have a soft landing here. <laughs> and by 2024, um, we're going to get down to a 2% inflation rate with no more than a 4.1 increase in the rate of unemployment. Impossible, folks. Uh, pie in the sky. This, this is uh, Lucy in the sky with economic diamonds. This is nonsense. <laughs> Dr. Jack, it sounds to me like what we're hearing is the difference between policies that sound good and good sound policies in that, to me— it seems like they know. Look, if you know that, they know that. The thing I, here's the way I think: there is a certain amount of ideology going on on it, yeah. But they can figure these things out. That what we're looking at a big part of this is this: is this things are going south, and they want to be seen as doing something to address it. So they're doing something, and they can say to the American people, we're doing something that, that addresses it. And because they've convinced everybody that raising interest rates will help, they're going to do it. And then just, you know, it's like, I'll do this now. I'll get people convinced that we're doing something, and I'll deal with the fallout later. I don't know. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, one of the reasons for the central bank is existence Fed and any central bank, is to take the heat off the politicians to do something about a crisis. In other words, to throw uh, the solution to the crisis over the transom to the central bank saying, oh, you deal with it, right? And they don't have to run for office, you see, uh, but the politicians have to run for office and they don't want to do anything about it with fiscal policy. In other words, they could raise uh, uh, taxes. They could take some of the Trump tax cut back and slow down the economy. They could do it that way. There are other things they can do with fiscal policy, but fiscal policy is finished. In other words, there's no tax increases, never has been since the Trump tax cuts. You know, no one's going to take those away. Democrats agree with that, right? So no tax hikes, fiscal policy to deal with the in, in inflation. Uh, and they are spending like hell on war, uh, because of Ukraine, because of this big shift in preparation to go after China, 
right? So no one's going to cut government war spending to do something about inflation. So fiscal policy is off the table totally. And what you're going to see now, as they do in these situations, is they rely totally on monetary policy to slow down uh, the inflation. But monetary policy, two points, can only slow down demand-driven inflation, and that's not our problem. And it can only do it by precipitating a deep recession, like we saw in 1981-82 when we had double-digit inflation, CPI, and the Fed comes in and the Fed uh, raises interest rates, you know, deja vu, folks. And what does that do? That throws the con uh, certain industries into a deep recession, mass layoffs, wage income collapses, therefore demand slows down. And they take it out on the consumer and the worker to reduce inflation when the inflation was supply side driven by oil companies and OPEC. It's the same thing today. You got oil companies price gouging everybody. They could produce more output, but they don't want to. At the same time, overlaid on that price gouging by oil, oil companies, you got Biden's war and Biden's sanctions and commodity prices and global speculators driving and insurance companies and shipping companies. Everybody's price gouging on these global energy prices going on, as well as certain industrial commodities, as well as agricultural goods, all of which are important market share, typically coming out of uh, Russia, but now they're not, you see, because of the sanctions and so forth. So that's overlaid. And now you have the shutdowns in China causing more global supply chain problems and commodity prices in general because of speculators. You know, the sanctions haven't really impacted actual physical supply of energy that much yet. It's beginning. But most of this increase in commodity prices are due to speculators and shippers raising their costs and, and insurers of shippers raising their costs and so forth. So it's going to continue. In other words, the supply side global problems and war related problems, sanctions related problems are going to continue. And that's the forces that Powell says he can't do anything about. <laughs> he can only take it out on the backs of demand and consumer demand. And then he's got this fanciful prediction that, oh, it's not going to raise the unemployment rate. In other words, it'll be a soft landing, right? And, oh, we're going to get these prices down. But you've never, never driven down prices in his perspective here uh, for his rate increases forecast for this year, going to bring prices down significantly. The, if that happens, it's, prices have never fallen that quickly in that short a time without a significant recession. That's the historical record. To your point about consumers, new survey of voters has message for Biden fight corporate greed to rein in inflation. With inflation running rampant, the administration seems to be scrambling for a solution. You know, Jack, there, there was a time when I could imagine an American president coming to the microphone and talking about real tangible plans to deal with this. Now it just seems as though... Biden mumbles a few lines and offers no serious solutions as you have just articulated. 
Yes, there's no solutions because they've decided the solution is to let the Federal Reserve take it out on the backs of consumer demand. They've decided that. So what is he going to do? Is he going to come up with something uh, alternative to that? I mean, it's all tepid, um, weak proposals that are coming out of this guy and he's running around the world trying to get other countries uh he's going hat in hand now to uh uh saudi arabia he's gonna he's gonna trade f-35s for barrels of oil right he's gonna try to you know uh he's got venezuela to say okay ship some oil we'll let it go now uh under our sanctions uh to europe uh he's he's looking for uh, he's desperate He's desperate. Instead of going to the U.S. oil companies and saying, look, you guys can produce two million more barrels a day. We know it. You did it in 2019. Now you either do that, right, or we're going to slap a surtax on your excess profits, which are $40, $50 billion a quarter now, and redistribute that in rebates uh, to consumers. He could do that. He could tax the hell out of them. I mean, even in the UK, they're proposing that. Uh, but he's not going to touch that. I mean, this is a totally bankrupt policy regime here. And boy, are they going to pay for it here come November 22 and again in November 24. I mean, the Republicans don't even have to do anything. Just let this guy shoot himself in both feet. So looking at the direction things are going, it feels like we're feeling the early stages of what's going to be an economic catastrophe. Europe is really, they're starting to get hit hard, and some of their governments are starting to fall. The Latvian government, inflation at 22%, and the government is collapsed. Now, people are saying the two aren't related, but I'm just kind of suspicious that maybe they are. Um, but at any rate, how bad is this thing going to get between here and November? What are the potentials? Do you think we're about where we're going to be? Or does does it hit a number where there's the point of no return, like it hits $10 for gas, and at that point, forget it. It's game over in the U.S. You know, the prices go crazy and things spiral out of control. Anyway, your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, well, it's already out of control, I think. I think most of the populace and voters have already come to that conclusion. I mean, gas prices in California, in Northern California, in some places are over $8 a gallon. And I heard in L.A., in some places, it hit $9 a gallon. Uh, I mean, uh, you could just imagine uh, how much real spending I don't know how people are making it. You know, uh, uh, even uh, eggs and milk prices are going through the roof. Uh, I mean, it's it's far worse, far worse than they're actually, uh, you know, reporting it going going on. Uh, I see inflation continuing here. I don't see it abating. To that point, and I'm I'm, I'm jumping in because we have just about a minute. Do gas prices become the new COVID? Do do corporations start telling their people stay home, particularly in places like Los Angeles where you can you can burn a tank of gas getting to work. Do corporations start telling their employees stay home because it's too expensive for you to drive your car to work? Uh, well, I think uh, the workers are going to tell their employers it's too expensive to drive to work. Well, either way. You know, either way, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we, we may be approaching that. This thing continues uh, uh, chronically for several more months, yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Europe very briefly, very briefly on Europe. They had an the emergency meeting of the central bank yesterday because now they're concerned that they're going to see a resurrection of the debt crisis of 2011 and 12 in southern Europe. In other words, when these rates rise the way they are and prices rise, costs rise the way they are, mm -hmm. Uh, Greece and Italy can't pay their debt 
on their on their global bonds. Mm. You know, uh, they they're going to have to throw more money at them okay. again. Uh, so, in other words, no one's really talking about what's coming in terms of financial instability behind all of this six to twelve months from now. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. I'm always ready to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Jack. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Two years since diplomat Alex Saab was abducted for defying U.S. sanctions, June 12th marked two years since the kidnapping of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab while on a humanitarian mission to Iran, his third mission to the country, to try to alleviate the effects of the U.S. economic warfare against Venezuela. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, The Huffington Post, and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Saab, an, incre- an accredited diplomat protected under the Vienna Convention, was abducted in Cape Verde without an arrest warrant or Interpol alert was taken to the U.S. in October of 2021, where he still languishes. Give us an update uh, where we are with this Dan Kovalik. Is he any closer to some level of justice? Let me put it that way. Well, perhaps. Uh, hearings are scheduled for the end of this summer uh, on his claim for having diplomatic immunity. And you know, which we think have been pretty clear from the beginning that he did have that. But now this book has come out by Mark Esper, who was uh, Secretary of Defense under Trump, who now admits in this book that people in the State Department and others were concerned about his arrest because they were quite aware that he was a diplomat and that he was on a diplomatic mission at the time uh, he was arrested in Cabo Verde. So You know, if he gets his day in court on this issue and if he has any type of fair hearing, he should win and should be released. You know, um, though, given how people like him have been treated, uh, he's been held now for two years uh, and has yet to have a hearing. Um, And if you look at what's happening, Julian Assange has been held much longer and, and still is sitting there without any hearing on the merits of his charges, uh, you know, I can't be that optimistic. But, I mean, there is a chance that things could move forward. Now, uh, Esper now could actually be um, uh, summoned um, to come to court as a witness, correct? Now, and here's my question. Would it, it, would, would it be um, – is it now feasible in light of this new evidence to petition the court for a hearing based solely on that evidence – and a request for um, 
uh, to, for, to dismiss the case based on these evidence and to present that evidence at a hearing? Is, I mean, is it is it feasible to make a make that that request in light of how extreme this this is? Yes. I mean, uh, well, the hearing is already scheduled, but I'm certain they will put the book into evidence or the passages in evidence. And as you say, yes, I'm certain that he could be and probably will be called as a witness and probably others uh, in the Trump administration. You know, they've opened themselves up to this, you know, and especially him, since now he's talked about this openly in a book. He can't claim any privilege. He's waived any privilege he would have had. Not that I think he would have had a good case for privilege, but any any case he would have had has now been waived. So, yes, I think he will definitely be open up to being hauled into court to talk about this. On Saturday, there was a uh, Puerto Rican People's Day parade in Chicago. And in the midst of that parade, there was a group of activists that participated in demonstrating their opposition to the kidnapping of Alex Saab. Is this event or are these actions in Chicago giving you hope that the case is gaining traction in the United States or are there unfortunately not enough of these taking place to warrant hope? Well, it certainly gives me some hope. I mean, my hope is tempered a bit by the fact that, yes, I mean, it's not these protests aren't happening happening on a huge scale, but they are happening. There's been protests in Miami as well, um, pro- protests in Los Angeles around the summit of the Americas. Uh, so absolutely, people are becoming aware of this. And of course, I think what gives me the most hope is the fact that the U.S. needs oil from Venezuela. And uh, this issue with Saab's incarceration is a huge issue for the Venezuelan government. So I could see Something happening, you know, that the U.S. may have to make a concession on this to get that oil. So I think all these things combined give me some hope. Uh, and I, here's what I also think is interesting, that it was the Puerto Rican Day Parade and that what we've seen recently with the Summit of Americas, we see the Puerto Rican Day Parade standing up for Alex Saab. We see a unity amongst um, people of uh, of uh, the Caribbean and Latin America. We see other people who are of a um, a leftist nature, shall we say, around the world, standing up for each other's, not just for the people of their country or the people of their individual culture, but recognizing the broader implications of having an anti-imperialist bloc. We see President Maduro in all over the Middle East and signing, de- you know, this big deal with with Iran. We see this anti-imperialist bloc forming and broadening throughout Latin America, but around the world. Your thoughts, Dan? Well, it's quite exciting. I I totally agree with you. You see this multipolar world developing. Of course, you saw a number of Latin countries rally around Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela when they were not invited to the summit. Mexico refused to go in response. Bolivia refused to go. Um, Honduras refused to go. A couple other Caribbean countries refused to go. And so, yes, all this is a sign that the forces in Latin America and the Caribbean are uniting against U.S. imperialism. You see countries reaching out, as you say, to Iran, to China, to Russia. In fact, a big controversy now is that Danny Ortega in Nicaragua has signed uh, um, or passed a law 
um, which will allow Russian troops into Nicaragua. So countries are going their own way and have decided that they need independence from the United States. And yeah, it's quite exciting, actually. And, you know, to the point about the Puerto Rican Day Parade in Chicago, it would really be an incredible sign if on Saturday, August 13th, there was an Alex Saab element in the Bud Billiken Parade, because the Bud Billiken Parade in Chicago is the largest African-American parade in the country. And so that would be an incredible signal to those in Chicago listening to the sound of our voices. Y'all might want to jump on that quicker than quick. To your point, Qatar is next stop on Maduro's international tour. You were talking about Nicaragua. The president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, he arrived in Doha as the next stop on the international tour that has taken him to Turkey, Algeria, Iran, and Kuwait. He is has really risen. His visibility, the optics of this, is quite statesmanlike, Mr. Kovalik. Yeah, well, he definitely has gained much stature in recent months. Uh, the Venezuelan economy is now coming back. Um, it's estimated that that will grow by 15 to 20 percent. You now have the U.S. coming hat in hand uh, to Venezuela for oil. Um, so certainly the tide is now uh, – it's now moving in Maduro's uh, direction, and he's not resting on his laurels. As you say, he's reaching out to all these other countries who seem receptive to him. So it's it's quite exciting, really. Uh, another uh, interesting story, uh, Pedro or Hernandez, what do polls say with the second round days ahead? What are your thoughts on what happens in Colombia? Because there certainly is some concern, especially with the polls being close, that the uh, ugly hand of U.S. imperialism could be uh, up to miscreant activity. Yeah, well, I am concerned. At least the last polls I show, saw showed Petro ahead, but as you say, not by very much. And I do think in a close race in Colombia— uh, it, it allows for a lot of room for mischief, and um, so I have to think we have to be looking out for that. And then even if he wins, I think you know his life and that of his vice president Francia Marquez, their lives will be certainly in danger. So the struggle will continue no matter what. But uh, I do think eyes, all eyes, have to be on the elections. Talk about uh, Ms. Marquez, uh, Francia Marquez, because she, in her own right, is a historic figure. She's an amazing person, actually. I've met her before. Um, I've done a lot of work with the Afro-Colombian community, and she's been a big leader of it uh, for many years, um, tr defending the rights of Afro-Colombians, of Afro-Colombian women, an outspoken advocate. Um, to the point where she's received many death threats, have had to go into hiding on a number of occasions. Um, people don't often think about the huge Afro-descendant population in Colombia, but it is huge. And it is one of the most persecuted. The Afro-Colombians and indigenous are the most persecuted people there. Uh, Colombia has about 8 million internally displaced people, more than any country on earth. It's a big surprise to many people. And a disproportionate amount are Afro-Colombians and indigenous whose land, which happens to be 
the richest land uh, have been forcibly taken uh, with the help of U.S.-backed paramilitaries. Uh, and she's been someone standing up against that. So she's an amazing figure, as you say. And that she's running for vice president is a historic event. The very fact she's running uh, is a major, major victory. In fact, just really quickly, you mentioned the Afro-Colombian population in Colombia. Colombia shares a border with Brazil, where Brazil has the largest uh, population of people of color, Africans, outside of the continent of Africa. I just wanted to make make that point. Yeah, throughout, th- I mean, throughout this hemisphere, obviously you see that. A lot of that is because of, uh, of slavery, of mm-hmm. Africans being, you know, forcibly brought here. But yes, I mean, throughout the Americas, uh, Afro-descendants are a critical part. And again, a lot of times people tend to forget about that, but uh, it's a very important part of our hemisphere. I'm also seeing some numbers that Lula is far ahead of the competition in Brazil, in, in, in Brazil and that you know, the empire has to be afraid because the loss of Colombia, which is their military base, and Brazil, which I think is the fifth largest and fifth most populous nation in the world, would be devastating and pretty much slam the door on U.S. imperialism in, um, in South America. One minute. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. officials have to be frightened by, by these two developments, as you say. If Colombia and Brazil uh, went to the left, this would be a, a major blow to U.S. imperialism, the biggest blow maybe ever in history. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The L.A. Progressive has a piece. Will we see Liz Cheney for president? What? Well, for insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. Is she the person America will need? The author of this piece, Robert Reich, writes, I trust Joe Biden's steadiness and judgment, and if he runs again, I'll probably back him in 2024. Well, that right there tells you he's delusional. But today I want to suggest someone who isn't even a Democrat and whose positions on many issues I, and I suspect you, strongly disagree with, but who could possibly be the best president of the United States for the perilous time we're entering, Robert Reich says, I'm referring to Liz Cheney. Dan Lazar, help me out with this. It's it, it, it's totally bizarre. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, it's bizarre on any number of grounds. I mean, I mean, Liz Cheney is a loyal, is loyal to her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney. As far as I'm aware, she supports everything he did in office, and that includes uh, going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
and starting off, you know, America's forever wars. So, I mean, if that's what Robert Reich wants, I mean, I don't want it, certainly. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Not only is she loyal to her father, she's loyal to her mother, Lynn Cheney, who went all around this country challenging what she deemed to believe liberal professors in colleges. Oh, that's right. And did everything in her power to either get them fired or deported. It was kind of like one of those 1950s anti-communist out of, exactly. the, out of the college kind of crusade. She was a one-person hit squad on, quote-unquote, progressive th- education and thought. Go, go ahead, Dan. And even, uh, even more shocking, uh, Liz Cheney has a sister who was gay. Correct. And, and, uh, and, uh, and Liz and her mother publicly denounced her sister for being gay. I mean, pretty shocking as far as I'm concerned. But somehow but, this is the, go ahead. <laughs> this, yeah, this is, the, this is the great white hope. Um, but the other thing, which I think is really, in some ways, the most important thing, which no one is talking about, is that, um, is that he wants to bring Liz Cheney you know, on board because Liz is attacking Trump for trying to steal the 2020 election. But what no one mentions is that Dick Cheney stole the 2000 election. <laughs> so, 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 what's happening? You know, I mean, sort of, you know, is this like you're, you're bringing a thief to a to, to 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 get a thief? I mean, I mean, I mean, the the theft of the 2000 election was a, a an enormous a body blow against democracy. It's Started America that started American politics, you know, you know, crashing downhill, and then U.S. politics really haven't recovered. Um, and 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 the uh, you know, and to sort of like you know, to sort of not even mention that that she endorses this 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 theft is astonishing. And and she voted with Donald Trump. Ninety-three percent of the time, which would make sense because she's a member of his party. <laughs> but here's the thing: that this is truly bizarre. Robert Reich actually wrote wrote this article, and here's what's. I mean, he must have thought he must have sat back and thought about this for a long time. Here's what he wrote: I don't think he did. Paradoxically, <laughs> Cheney, although conservative, reminds me of Senator. Paul Wellstone. Liz Cheney is being compared to Paul. Well, he might as well compare her to Paul Robeson, uh, you know, for all that matter. This is absurd. You know, she kind of reminds me a lot of uh, Che Guevara now that I think of it. It is preposterous on its face. Uh, 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 And it just goes to show where, to me, the mainstream Politicians in America have lost the concept of policy positions being progressive or conservative or left or right through the lens of the old um, the French parliament, where the people on the that literally sat on the right supported the oligarchy and the nobility and the status quo. And the people that literally sat on the left, you know, wanted change and revolution and to help the, 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 the working class, et cetera. And now we've got this weird thing where people like Reich just say, well, she opposed Trump. Yay, I love her. Dan. Well, you see, the Democratic Party is going to the right. I mean, the uh, the essentially the uh, the parties were taken over by neocons, 
Uh, and then uh, this is this is clear. This has happened. You know, this is what Biden represents. And uh, and it's, it's not that long a step from from the neocon to a to to a Liz Cheney. Uh, so you know, so and so so you know, so so we're back in the in the in the in the in the world of forever wars, and it's impossible to escape. And the country's going into, into recession, and war is spreading. I, I mean, the whole thing is so dismal. I find it uh, I find it astonishing. And to your point about the party moving to the right, thank you, thank you, Bill Clinton, and the, the Democratic uh, Leadership Council. Uh, he writes, "I hope she declares herself a candidate for president and runs in the Republican primary against Trump. The GOP desperately needs her moral clarity <laughs> and authority." Now, she was right once. On this January 6th issue, she's right about that once. A broken clock is right twice a day. She's only right once a day. I, I Garland, let's go to the next. I, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. So there's a, another article and it's we will win. America's policy must take on China. Heritage president tells the House GOP. Now, we reported here a few weeks back that the Heritage Foundation was joining with some other MAGA people to push back against Ukraine. And now, you know, and, and some people were taking that to mean that the old non-interventionalist conservatives were coming to the forefront again. And they would be the ones that would carry us back to a land where we looked out for all and we didn't run around the world. And as we all discussed, no. They just want war with a different power. That's all. The people, the people who are concerned with commodities, the oligarchs concerned with commodities, want war with Russia. The oligarchs that are con concerned with the industrialists, they want war with China. It's just different oligarchs that control them. Dan, your thoughts? Do you think I'm wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong at all. I mean, I think I think the uh, the push for war with uh, with China is the most terrifying thing out there. Uh, I mean, I can't think of a, a a worse outcome, you know, to the to the buildup of tensions in the uh, in the Western Pacific than an actual you know military conflict between the, between the U.S. and the and the People's Republic, um, you know, and and one thing the Ukraine has one thing Ukraine shows is that America can push and push and push. And eventually things will explode. In other words, like, you know, pushing and being aggressive and being a bully um, often leads to trouble. And if the U.S. does the same thing in the Western Pacific, if it keeps engaging in a pro provocative policy towards China, keeps, you know, keeps up this, this, this silly war talk, you know, keeps, you know, making threats, then the dangers go up that, you know, that, that, that this the cigar will explode in America's face. Um, and, uh, and it's the, the, the outcome is like, it would be too dreadful to contemplate. I mean, China has a, has nuclear weapons, number one. Uh, it has the ability to get those nuclear weapons, you know, to strike the U S with those weapons. But even on a sub nuclear level, it has, you know, it is bristling with all kinds of, you know, missiles and, uh, and, and fighter aircraft um, that could do immense damage 
to U.S. naval base bases, to 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 um to uh to uh, U.S. bases in Okinawa and Guam. Uh, it could set the entire region afire. And is that what these crazy warmongering fools want? Kevin Roberts, the president of Heritage, says that. The Heritage Foundation is working on a governing document for January 2025, the beginning of the next president's term, and he invited input from members of the Republican Study Committee. That, to me, speaks volumes about the power of these think tanks. And we can go back to PNAC, the project for the new American century that was started by Liz Cheney's dad, Dick Cheney, where they were petitioning Bill Clinton to go in and uh, take out Saddam Hussein, for example. This, to me, gives great insight into really where a lot of American policy now comes from and gives you real insight into who's behind the development of that policy. Yeah, there's actually less accountability now than there ever has been. I mean, we have uh, someone nicknamed the foreign policy establishment, the blob. And uh, it consists of, you know, a half dozen major think tanks, which are, which are heavily funded by corporations, including weapons manufacturers like, like, like uh, Raytheon. Um, and, uh, and, and, and these, these, these uh, think tanks uh, create a, an atmosphere, uh, a pro-war atmosphere, where, you know, where, where, you know military power and, you know, and, and military aggressiveness is seen as the key to rolling back any challenges to the U.S. empire. You know, so, so, you know, so this is a strategy that, that, that could make the, the forever wars of uh, 2001 to, to, to 2020 or to a 2021, which is when the, uh, the U.S. left Afghanistan, make those seem like a, just a, a mere warm-up for the conflicts to come. I mean, the Ukraine, the South China Sea, does the U.S. really want to go there? And, and when will the people weigh in? When will the American working class weigh in? It's facing inflation, recession. Does it really want its kids to go off into war in the Western Pacific? I mean, over what, too? I mean, over the over what Chinese competition in the computer, you know, the computer chip trade. Uh, You know, is this really what American sons and daughters should die for? Yeah. And and I I agree. And and I think the America is so divided. If America started a war in a draft right now under Biden, there'd be a lot of people that would just simply say, you'll have to put me in prison because I'm not going to go fight for Joe Biden. I mean, they, I, America is not united enough to even fight a war because a draft, any attempt at a draft would probably the country would fall apart. Uh, 30 seconds. Listen, abolishing the draft in the 1970s was the dumbest thing the left ever pushed for. Because, because if there had been a draft, you would never have had any of these wars that American parents, would have been up in arms at the first the first threat of war. So I mean, so I, I really actually almost hope Biden tries to bring back the draft. Of course, it'll blow up in his face. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Statement by Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on President Biden's travel to Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. President Joe Biden will visit the Middle East region from July 13 to the 16 to reinforce the United States' ironclad commitment to Israel's security and prosperity and attend a summit of the Gulf Cooperation Council plus Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan, known as the GCC plus three. He will also meet with counterparts from across the region to advance U.S. security, economic, and diplomatic interests. What signals is Biden sending with this visit? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine, and his latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir, Robert Fantina. As always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. So the president will begin his travel in Israel, where he will meet with Israeli leaders to discuss Israel's so-called security, prosperity, and its increasing integration into the greater region. He will visit the West Bank to consult with the Palestinian Authority and to reiterate his strong support for a two-state solution with equal measures of security, freedom, and opportunity for the Palestinian people. Robert, can you help me unpack this statement because I don't understand Israel's increasing integration into the greater region. Uh, The two-state solution seems to be dead, and we know that the first visit is the message that sends the most important, which is he's going to Israel first. Yes, there are many things, many things this brief statement. Uh, It's interesting that the press secretary says that he will visit Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia, not Israel, Palestine, and Saudi Arabia. And that's, that's what he should say, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as this increased integration into the, into the region, it has to be remembered that the so-called Abraham Accords were made with other countries against the wishes of the people of those countries. The people who live in those, those countries that have recognized Israel, that recognized Israel during the Trump administration, uh, support Palestine and oppose uh, any any rapprochement with Israel. So these are countries that are dictatorships. They do what is economically uh, beneficial for the leaders, and they don't care about the people. Now, also, uh, he is, of course, going to Israel first, which does, as you mentioned, say that that's the most important. Now, it's to partly to reinforce the U.S.'s ironclad commitment to Israel's security, I have to question why the United States has such a commitment. Why is Israel's security so vitally important to the United States? Then he goes on to say, the press statement goes on to say that he supports a two-state solution, which, as you said, is, if not dead, at least on life support. Okay. It's equal measures of security for the Palestinian people. So does Biden also have, or does the United States also have an ironclad commitment to Palestine's security? The other thing is here, okay, there's a, uh, he's, he's committed to Israel's security. Israel is, a, is, is attacking Syria, bombing Damascus airport uh, without provocation, without anything coming from Syria. They're illegally occupying part of Syria, just as, as is the United States, and they're bombing Syria. Bomb, uh, Syria's not attacking them. They're practicing an attack on Iran. They're murdering um, Iranian scientists and, 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 uh, and, and intellectuals, and 
And the U.S. says we must be concerned with Israel's security. Well, maybe the only reason that Israel has any concern with their security is because they're attacking all of their neighbors uh, in an unprovoked area, uh, you know, in a way that's completely unprovoked, Robert. Yes, I agree. They, uh, Israel, as we know, is, is a rogue state. It's an apartheid regime. Uh, it's racist. It's violent. It, uh, it's hiding and has for years been hiding its nuclear program. Uh, it is not a responsible player on the world stage. And yet this is the country that the United States has an ironclad commitment to, despite its constant violations of international law, its horrendous abuses of human rights, and its many war crimes. So the United States is showing its true colors, as it always has, in its endorsement of, of Israel. As you said, uh, bombing Syria, assassinating Iranian journalists, or, or, uh, Iranian scientists, these are not the – this isn't diplomacy. This isn't what uh, the world needs. What the world needs is, is more peace, not more war, not more bombs. But Israel is front and center in its violence and in its violation of international law. You know, you just said what the world needs is more peace and not more war. And that just makes me think, well, the Joe Biden going to Israel first – validates uh, Israel's oppression and genocide of the Palestinian people. Joe Biden uh, or sends his emissaries to Taiwan to foment and to anger China. Uh, we know what's going on in the Ukraine. The United States is now sending more weapons into Ukraine in this failed effort uh, to defend it. So at every turn, the United States is doing everything in its power to aggravate people, to antagonize people, and to try to bait people into conflict instead of doing what Joe Biden said he was going to do on the campaign trail, which was lead with diplomacy. And it, it, I don't know that diplomacy at the barrel of a gun has ever worked. No, that, that's not diplomacy. And uh, the United States has never been interested in diplomacy from its earliest history. It has a belief that might makes right, and as the most powerful country in the world, it can do whatever it pleases. So Israel, uh, Israeli lobbies donate piles of money to uh, candidates and, and elected officials running for election or re-election in the United States, so their war crimes can be overlooked. Uh, if, if Iran threatens Israel, not in a military manner, but just in terms of influence in that part of the world, well, then Iran must be defeated. Whatever Israel wants to do, it's allowed to do. The, the illegal settlements, where over 600,000 uh, Israelis now live illegally, could be vacated tomorrow if the United States deemed it necessary. If, if Biden told Bennett, we're cutting off all support, military, financial, everything, until you... Uh, respect the 1967 borders uh, as the UN, unjustly as it was, established back in 1948, then Israel would have no choice but to do so. But the United States does not want to antagonize Israel because uh, Israeli lobbies provide a lot of money to U.S. government officials. Uh, it's Israel's, and and Israel is the U.S.'s aircraft carrier um, in the midst of all of the oil wealth. Um, Iran's Ports and Maritime Organization says, 
an Iranian flag tanker seized in April has been freed by Greece, according to the country's semi-official mayor news agency. Um, and the backstory, of course, behind that is the U.S. Uh, kind of pushed Greece. They seized two um, Iranian tankers, uh, two tankers full of Iranian oil. The U.S. stole the oil and sold it on the market. And in return, the uh, the Iranians struck back by gra- grabbing um they stole an Iranian ship, and Iran gra- grabbed two Greek ships and held on to them, and now that the bargaining has gone. But I think, again, that is a sign that this is a multipolar world and that countries are not just going to sit around and allow the U.S. and its vassals to do anything they want and go unchallenged. Your thoughts, Robert? Right. So those days are gone. Uh, there are enough countries with enough, enough power to, uh, to oppose the United States. So the United States still runs roughshod over much of the world, but no longer without consequences. Uh, the, the, the seizure of the ship by Greece was, as you said, U.S.-directed, but Iran didn't simply sit back. Iran took measures, peaceful measures, but they, they seized two Greek ships and used them as uh, negotiation, negotiation tools to get back their own vessel. Uh, this is not what the United States would be interested in doing it. It hopes that, that there would, it would take the Iranian ship and that would be the end of it. But that's not the way it is anymore. That's not the game. That's not the way the game is being played anymore. Those are old rules. The United States has to learn that it is part of a global community. It isn't the, the, it isn't the president or the leader of the world anymore. The Middle East Eye reports U.S. government watchdog says weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE lack oversight. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office's report, says that the U.S. has not provided evidence it vetted arms sales to Gulf Arab countries. This, to me, really demonstrates the power of the military-industrial complex and and arms manufacturers uh, and their ability to hold sway over uh, who's doing what and what's being done. Absolutely. The military-industrial complex, as you mentioned, and the so-called defense industry in the United States is a huge moneymaker. Their profits are astronomical every year. They grow every year. So the U.S. isn't concerned with where their weapons are going. They will sell them to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, wherever else. U.S. international law says that these weapons cannot be used in certain, certain ways such as against the, the civilian population of Yemen. But the United States doesn't care. The United States government doesn't care as long as it's getting its money from Saudi Arabia and will continue to get its money from Saudi Arabia for future weapon sales. What Saudi Arabia does with those weapons is of no concern to the U.S. government, even though the uh, General Accounting Office uh, uh, is, is indicating, or Accountability Office is indicating that, is, that uh, Saudi Arabia is using them in violation of U.S. law. That's not important. Well, also, when the, in, in the, um, the press release where they're talking about um, the, the president um, traveling, they also talk about that the, uh, the, the U.S. is going to um, continue to, they're going to support the, um, the U.N. ceasefire in Yemen, which, I mean, the, it was the U.S. could have had that ceasefire anytime they wanted to. And might I add, Joe Biden promised 
on the campaign trail that he would stop the basically stop the conflict and he's done nothing to, to he's done nothing to stop it and basically the um ceasefire my understanding is it was internal it was more driven by Saudi Arabia and its allies for a number of reasons far not not the least of which being because Yemen was hitting them pretty hard with a bunch of uh with a bunch of uh, uh drones and and uh causing great damage to their um their oil producing facilities uh, your thoughts on that and Saudi Arabia had to kind of take a look and say, this isn't going to be the cakewalk that, that the government expected. And as far as the broken promise that uh, from Joe Biden, that's just one of many. He promised to re-enter the JCPOA as soon as he was elected. Well, it's been a year and a half, and the JCPOA is dead. Uh, this is he's, any candidate, and Biden, as bad as he is, is no worse than the others. They make all kinds of promises on the campaign trail. They say to one audience what it thinks that audience wants to hear and something else to another audience. And then when they get into office, they, they do what they want. Certainly, the president's power is limited by Congress, but there are things Biden could have done since day one to end the war in Yemen that he could do today the same. He could re-enter the JCPOA. He could end the occupation of Palestine. There's so much he could do, and yet he isn't interested in doing those things. He is play, he's a consummate politician. He's been part of the Washington establishment 40 years, and he's simply playing the game that the United States is a profit-making and power-hungry organization. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. It's always my pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Is the narrative regarding the Ukraine changing? If so, this is a huge issue. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. Regis, as always, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. I know what we've been hearing here, and and I go back to people like Henry Kissinger at the Davos meeting. We've seen incredibly interesting narratives in the, or or op eds in the New York Times and in other papers. From where you sit, is this narrative changing? Well, for me, it definitely is changing, and I think it's it's uh, really pretty significant. You know, the Russian people, by and large, and I mean the majority, are not paying any attention to uh, American media, news from the United States, very few. I have a couple of friends, uh, Russians, who are paying attention. They read everything. They they also send me a lot of links to uh, even the New York Times, the Washington Post, and uh, so they are aware. But I think what's happening And as I look at it, the narrative isn't just changing in the United States um, with the mainstream media. Um, They're beginning to point fingers. And I I had to laugh because 
It's the same excuse we heard after 9-11 and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, Intel was not good, insufficient, pointing fingers at everybody and their brother. And now the Pentagon recently came out and said they're revising their strategy in Ukraine. So all these conflicting messages. And then you get another message uh, from from Europe. Um, Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, uh, a few days ago, he was talking and telling Ukraine that, you know, they needed to figure out how much territory they were going to give up when this thing was over and they had to start talking to Russia. Macron yesterday said the same thing. And so today, Stoltenberg comes out and says we're shipping more uh, really powerful long-range missiles to Ukraine. The Defense Department said the same thing. So you can see the cracks in the wall here. And I think it's really significant, especially because in NATO, the NATO countries, the people are suffering tremendously right now. They're beginning to rise up. They have been rising up for a long time. Um, and so what it tells me is the support for this effort with some of the leaders of these countries and the United States is beginning to crack, is beginning to diminish, because it is obvious to everybody that this conflict in Ukraine is all but over. It isn't when Russia's going to win. Russia really has already won. It's a matter of cleaning up and eradicating a few of these well-defended, well-entrenched um, national and neo-Nazi armies. And so that's the view from here as far as I see it, and I'm, I'm really encouraged by it. Well, let me give you two examples. One of them is anecdotal. The Daily Beast— and everybody knows that's like a Clinton kind of rag, right? Here's an article. Judgment Day is coming for Zelensky. Now, that is a clue that things may be changing. And they go on in that article to say, well, you know, it looks like he might just have to uh, negotiate with the Russians after all. And, and, and an anecdotal story, I was telling Wilmer, I was with some friends out fishing on a boat um, last weekend. And these were mostly, you know, uh, African-American businessmen. They have been traditionally the, you know, strong supporters of the Biden and the Democratic Party. And, you know, we have had our go around, shall we say, about the issues. And when I talked to them last Sunday there, I mean, Saturday we were fishing, we were out there, there was a total change. And it was, ah, this Ukraine thing is just a scam. It's just another way. They're raising the prices. They're using it to get over on us and blah, blah, blah. All support for all of the Ukraine lies went out the window and it had to do with they were paying too much for fuel. Their business was for falling apart. Why are we sending $40 billion over there? Blah, blah, blah. These are people who had supported the Biden administration no matter what. And if they're falling off, then the Biden administration and his people are in real trouble. What do you think, uh, uh, Regis? I, I am very encouraged to hear that. And to tell you the truth, I'm not surprised because I've heard the same stories from others that people now, because they're feeling the pain in the pocketbook, at the grocery store, at the gas pump, um, they're feeling it everywhere. 
And now they know and are beginning to realize that Putin is not the cause of it. You mentioned Zelensky. Zelensky, right now, well, he has been fighting for his life. The the neo-Nazis, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop calling them neo, they're Nazis. <laughs> and we, we need not sugarcoat this. They have threatened him with his life and his family that if even starts talking about peace with Russia, they will kill him. And now you have these European NATO leaders saying, Zelensky, you know, you better start thinking about talking to Russia. He, he's between a rock and a hard spot. And I'm seriously questioning why he hasn't disappeared and run away already. And the second thing about it is one of my Russian friends who's been on my show many times, he's a former diplomat, he's retired now, he said that he thinks that a coup undertaken by some Ukrainian nationalist patriotic military people may overthrow him and try to reclaim and restore their country. Incredible. But these are some of the stories that I'm hearing here. There's an interesting piece in Moon of Alabama entitled Ukraine Killing Surrendering Soldiers Shelling Civilians. And it opens. Here's a here's a snippet. At 8.30 today, I checked the priorities of the day on major U.S. websites, one from The New York Times. The name Trump appeared 10 times, Ukraine appeared five. Washington Post, Trump appeared 12, Ukraine five. Wall Street Journal, Trump nine, Ukraine three. This is a problem because it takes pressure off the Biden administration to negotiate with Russia over Ukraine and the future security architecture in Europe. Then he goes to today's daily clobber list by the Russian Ministry of Defense includes an additional chapter taken from the verbal briefing. I would like to note that in recent weeks, incidents involving the shooting of Ukrainian servicemen in the back by nationalist units have been more frequent in areas of military operations. And then there are other things going on. So basically, to the point about the narrative shifting, not only is the narrative shifting, but the discussion about the war is moving further down the pecking order of conversation. And the realities of what's happening are still not being reported. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> Trump is getting more coverage now than than the conflict in Ukraine. That that's terrific news for me. And, and, and prim primarily because of the January sixth uh, hearings that are going on uh, right now. But it, but go ahead. But but it it matters not <laughs> because the 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 tsunami, the the avalanche of propaganda twenty four seven that was coming from all of the mainstream media throughout this conflict is now diminishing. It's, it's changed attention to Trump. <laughs> and I think that's not only good news, but it's hilarious. I'm laughing over here about it. I had not heard that. Well, the you know, uh, it's definitely uh, I when you watch because I don't watch the news, but I go over a friend of mine's house and we work out a couple times a week, and he always has a, a TV on in the room, which I'm not happy about because he always has the news on. But I noticed for months, 
it was just Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Oh, the Russians are losing. They're losing tanks. They're losing aircraft. They're losing everybody. You know, the, the Azov battalion is surrounded in Moscow, and they're about to plant their Azov flag in Red Square any minute. You know, just propaganda after propaganda. And the last week or so, or a couple weeks, I've noticed they're talking about everything except Ukraine. All the other news has creeped back in, and Ukraine, it's obvious that they know things are going south. But let me, let me say this. All this talk about diplomacy, it sounds to me like the Western leaders kind of think that they can just march up to Russia and give them some kind of a cockamamie offer. Yes, uh, here's an offer. You guys give all the ground that you've taken back and give us all your money for 20 years and apologize and we'll call it quits. You know, like they have a card to play. And I look at it like this. Russia already had a deal with them. It was called the Minsk Agreements, and they wouldn't stand to that. Why would Russia even trust them for another deal, for starters? And secondly, since Russia's winning, if Russia wants a deal, it, it, I would think it would be like this. Give us everything we ask for, or we'll just keep fighting. Your thoughts on those two points? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> Russia is not going to agree to any deal uh, peace talks uh, with NATO, with Ukraine, NATO, or the United States. Their mission is to demilitarize Ukraine so that the attacks on the Donbass in Russia will cease and they'll, they'll not be able to continue and to further attack the Russian mainland. Second of all, to denazify Ukraine. That is going to take some time. <clears throat> and if I can make a comment about this, this Nazi ideology, it's been festering not only in Ukraine for the last 77 years, but after World War II, there were cells in most European countries supported and funded by the CIA. And I'm going to be on a radio show or a Zoom uh, international meeting here next week. <clears throat> it's about what to do about this Nazi ideology. Nobody was talking about America. And in my research, and I found that there were 100, maybe more, Nazi groups, Nazi-affiliated groups in the United States alone. Now, this should be a concern for the entire world, that this ideology is back, and it's strong, it's violent, and it's cruel. And you want to talk about democracy being threatened? You want to talk about personal freedoms and human rights being threatened? Um, this is the threat that this Nazi ideology poses for the entire world. And it's Russia and Russian people, and the Russian military, that know that it's their destiny. It's their mission to wipe it out. And I hope and pray that they will. There's another narrative that I found to be really interesting, and it comes from MSN. And it reads as follows. Putin is making more on oil than he's spending on Ukraine war. A report released Monday showed Russian President Vladimir Putin made more money from oil exports during the first 100 days of his war in Ukraine than he spent on the conflict. The personalization of this story as though... There's no bureaucracy in Russia. There's no government in Russia. Putin doesn't have to answer to anybody that this is his war. He's spending the money. He's making the money. Your thoughts? Well, well, that's ridiculous. Um, 
I've had to share what the reality is about the Russian government. Um, they have a, an upper house, a Senate, and a lower house, representatives, just like we do in the United States. In fact, their constitution was based on the American constitution. But in reality, what happened is in the 1990s, under Gorbachev, but especially Yeltsin, um, the Russian, the Soviet Union had fallen. These oligarchs rose up because the United States under George Herbert Walker Bush came in and did a shock and awe on the Russian economy. Putin was elected. <clears throat> he was appointed and then elected in 2000. And in the last 22 years, Putin has had to walk a very narrow line. On one side, these oligarchs who, who basically took possession for pennies on the dollar of Russia's gas, Russia's industries, Russian banks, um, many of them were Western-leaning liberals. The others are patriotic, nationalistic Russians. And Putin has had to walk this narrow line between those two powerful forces. It isn't just a government he's answerable to and the people, mm -hmm. but these people, like in America, who own the corporations, who own the banks, have a tremendous influence on who the head of the state is. That's the situation as it is here in Russia. Sound familiar? And I've been told by Russians and by an economist from Ireland who's been here for all of these 20 years, he told me and the others told me that if Putin ever loses the support of the Russian people, he's finished. So it isn't like he's a tyrant or a dictator. And you're absolutely right. They personified all of this. Mm -hmm. And Putin, Putin is the bad guy. Putin's responsible for this. Putin is answerable to the military. He's answering to, to, to the Russian foreign ministry. And he is more than a spokesman because he's a very strong and organized mm -hmm. leader. Okay. Like many, like many of our American and multinational corporations. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Well, thank you very much, guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Moon of Alabama has a piece, Media Tune Down, Ukraine Hysteria, Continue to Print Falsehoods. The Ukraine war has fallen below the fold of the New York Times and the Washington Post. It is not the only sign that the, quote, Western, end quote, war rage and cheerleading for Ukraine has ended. When one scrolls down through there are still headlines on the New York Times front page. What are the subtle and not so subtle signals that this is sending? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an American columnist. He's a syndicated editorial cartoonist and author, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So there have been subtle and not so subtle 
messages that the narrative is shifting. And now we see that the stories of Ukraine are going below the fold. And for those who still read newspapers, that is quite significant. Ted Rawl. Yeah. So you can attribute this to, I think, two main causes. Number one, the extremely, uh, you know, the, the very short attention span of American news consumers, or at least the short attention span that uh, the arbitrators, the editors, the producers of American news believe that Americans have, perhaps more accurately. And, of course, the fact that the facts on the ground in Ukraine are not looking nearly as triumphalist as they were trying to uh, portray. I mean, you know, uh, you could say that when a war is being fought entirely on one country's territory, that it's not likely that that country is winning. And uh, that is certainly, um, you know, now with the benefit of uh, four months into the conflict, it's pretty clear that uh, Russia is doing much better than Ukraine. Um, the U- and it's uh, and I think there's a lot of egg on the face of uh, corporate American corporate media. You know what's interesting, Ted, and that is this was never really about the kinetic war for the West. The Russians were in there doing actually conducting a war. They were concerned with conducting a war. In the West, it was always about let's create a narrative where the Russians are losing and things aren't going good for them and the sanctions are going to wipe them out. And all the narrative sounded great. And it's like they hung on to the narrative as long as they could. And now they're like, boy, what are we going to do? And and maybe I'm cynical. Does it feel to you like they're trying to soften up the beachhead and prepare the American and the Western people for the eventuality that either they're going to have to cut a deal with the Russians or the Russians are simply going to impose their will militarily on Ukraine? Like they're, they're preparing them slowly but surely for what's inevitable to come. I don't think there's anything cynical about that. I think that's exactly what's happening. I mean, it's it's uh, you, you just can't avoid it. I mean, it's not even a, that subtle of a tone if you're used to reading outlets like The New York Times, uh, which require a lot of reading between the lines usually. Uh, this is, you know, it, it's very clear. They're, they're outright telling their readers, well, you know, this is actually not going that well. Actually, there's going to have to be a diplomatic solution. Actually... Russia's going to keep the territory that it currently has, and then some. Uh, and so, I mean, at this point, they're laying the groundwork uh, to say, look, there's going to have to be a negotiated s- settlement at some point. They're even talking about how the weapons that have been sent uh, have been, in some cases, disappearing and not showing up on the front line, or they're just not as effective as uh, you know, the, as we've been told, or the Ukrainian military isn't capable of using them or can't be trained to use them or can't be trained quickly enough. I mean, they're back, they're walking this back as fast as they can go. Uh, it, I'm kind of amazed that it's going this quickly, actually. But what's interesting is that the walk back isn't, isn't really a walk back because they're not admitting that they made a mistake. They're not changing the narrative, the lie that a lot of their analysis was based on. They just seem to move on to what they consider to be the next start, the next part of the story. This, there, there's a line here in, in, in Moon of, of Alabama. Russia is winning the war. 
The Ukraine has lost the war and will also use a large, to you, what you just said, and will also lose a large chunk of its territory. Its Western-fueled resistance against the inevitable has seen to that. The U.S. and NATO now acknowledge that much. But that's not what they're saying on MSNBC and CNN. Now they're still calling for more weapons to be sent into the Ukraine. Now they're now Zelensky's begging for was it how many billions of dollars a month? He says he wants now five billion a month. Five billion a month. Gas is what it is here, and I mean they're not walking back the narrative. They just seem to try to move, to turn the page and move on to the next uh, chapter in their book of lies. Well, Dr. Leon, that's. That is the American way of walking things back. <laughs> um, they, uh, they don't, you know, you're not going to, in, in Europe, there's an intellectual tradition, and in Asia, I would say it's even stronger, uh, of admitting when you, you have, you're expected to, uh, you know, go back and recognize your mistakes and acknowledge them in public and sort of explain why you made that mistake and how you would not make that mistake going forward, hopefully, and that you've learned from them. We don't do that here. I mean, when people do giant ideological pivots, it just sort of happens, and it's like surf pro, you know, like it never even happened before. Uh, when someone like Ariana Hutchinson or Bill Maher, who used to be staunch right-wing Republicans, uh, suddenly sort of, they just sort of, uh, when it becomes more convenient, then they're like, well, now I'm a sort of a liberal corporate Democrat. And they don't ever say, well, you know, I changed my mind. I, I don't like the Republicans anymore because of this. It's just the media does exactly the same thing. There's never been a reckoning over the, the Iraq war. There's certainly never been a reckoning over uh, the the U.S. Uh, media support for the invasion of Afghanistan. I don't think, and there never will be. Um, that's just that's just how they do things here. There's another interesting part of this article where they talk about Biden, and uh, they mention the the article: Should Biden run in 2024? Democratic whispers of no start to rise, and um, it's. Interesting because you see another narrative starting to come up when it comes to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. It's like they're starting to prep for the November um, uh, bloodbath. Yeah, catastrophe that seems to be in the offing. And at this point, they 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 won't come out and say. Our policies, we haven't done there, no policies. We haven't done anything that we said we were going to do. We haven't addressed the people's needs in any way. Instead, it seems I'm starting to think that it's going to be, yeah, that Biden's terrible. It was all his fault. We don't like, of course, they're going to say there was Russian interference. You know, Putin ran some Facebook ads with pictures of puppies or something. But, you know, that's a given. But it seems to me that there's a bus riding down K Street with Joe Biden's name under the bottom of it. <laughs> it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think they're really going to have to, they're going to really blame uh, their own standard bearer, or I should say soon to be former standard bearer, <laughs> because they can't really do that. I think this is much more about the fact that Joe Biden's going to be an octogenarian uh, by, the, by November of this year. And, you know, acting more like a centenarian, um, he is, you know, he's just too old and they're going to have to admit reality. Again, though, uh, you know, I would really love to get back uh, to hear back from some of the people who called people like us, you know, ageists, um, people who were uh, against uh, the rights of older people who were lying about 
Biden's supposed incapacity. Uh, you know, like, look, we called it the way we saw it because it was that way, because it was true, not because we're mean or because we're ageist. I mean, hopefully we're all going to be old someday. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, they just sort of like, there's just, it's just sort of the way the mainstream narrative works. Uh, progressives are right in advance, years ahead of time. And then the, the, maybe sometimes corporate media and the, and the powers that be in the DNC catch up. And then they act as if they just are discovering the reality for the very first time. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Christopher Columbus claiming to discover America as if no one had ever been here before. But here's another problem that I see for the Democrats in November of 22 and going into 24. They have no bench. They have no arms in the pen. There's there's to to go with my sports metaphors. They've got nobody waiting in the wings. There's. Hey, they got Mark Sanchez as their backup quarterback. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. They got nothing. And they don't seem to realize they got. Uh, I mean, do you see them trying to roll out Kamala Harris as, as a Amy as a, Klobuchar? We get, let's not forget. No, her. she's already done. <laughs> she's a, so. Oh, I'm, I keep forgetting Mayor Pete. So help me out. Um, I, I don't. I don't see. They don't. They don't have anybody. They don't have anybody. They really don't. You know, uh, this problem kind of was written about a long time ago. It sort of goes back to the two thousands. Um, and certainly became clear under Obama when he really emphasized national issues and the Democratic parties really stopped paying attention to grooming uh, up-and-coming politicians uh, who would now be exactly the right age if they had done that. You know, they'd be in their 40s and 50s. But they haven't done that. Uh, it's kind of crazy. They're going to have a lot of candidates. I mean, I, look, Kamala Harris, if she's foolish enough to run, um, will be... Uh, she's not going to be able to clear the field, and she would likely lose, I think, in a Democratic primary to pretty much any other living soul. Like I think Mayor or Pete did. Would. I don't think they'd have yeah, to be Secret- alive to beat her. Secretary Pete would probably defeat her. Um, you know, even though you know apparently he thought it was important to take time off from his first year in office uh, in the cabinet. Uh, I'm sorry, I just don't think that was very cool of him. Uh, even though I do believe in paid family leave. Um, but cabinet members, not so much. You know what? I, I think the Democrats made a huge miscalculation. And I'm not going to say mistake. I, I Miscalculation when they put their money on Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Think about there are a number of things that have happened. That the 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 RussiaGate story, the investigation, Scotus, all that, Scotus, all that. Thank you. All of that would not have happened if Hillary had beaten Trump. And I think they made a phenomenal mis- miscalculation in putting their money on that horse. No, it's true. And you know the thing is, it's like, and in a broader sense, sorry, no pun intended. You really just don't. You don't make you don't assume anything in politics. You always have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F. And they were just like, you you can't ever just sort of assume, even if something seems likely, that it's certain. There's just not the same thing. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think I think that that has troubled them ever since. And you still see the same exact decision making and analysis 
of, uh, of, of political situations over and over. Like you're hearing again the same hubris, like, well, obviously Donald Trump wouldn't win again. I'm like, he won before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he won. In fact, last time he was last time he lost, um, you know, he still got more votes than he did before, which means his popularity, his base of support is has grown. It has not shrunk. So there is literally no reason to assume that he would be easy to defeat. I, I will take issue with one thing you said, and I'm not even really taking issue, but you might use this as the basis of a cartoon. This didn't trouble the Democrats. This has haunted the Democrats, and they continue to be fighting this ghost. And one other quick thing, and one of the reasons that their um, their bench is so empty is because anyone who was progressive, they wiped them out of the party or wiped them out of that's power. A, that's a great point. That's a great, great point because the the they traded the, the team the, blue they, the, the team blue pack. Hakeem Jeffries is, yep. is running that. Its focus is to secure the seats of moderate Democrats and, and and eliminate progressive Democrats. They're doing it in Detroit, trying to get rid of Rashida Tlaib. It's the same thing. Ted Rawl, thank you so much as always. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Anytime. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 